Paul Colliac, to those of you that are in economics at Oxford, uh, knows, needs no introduction, but of course, for the many others uh, that are here, uh, it's worth highlighting not only his latest book, which is on sale at Blackwell's, and you can join him immediately afterwards for a signing there, uh, but also his previous books, Guns, uh, War and Votes, uh, and The Bottom Billion. Uh, before that. He's uh, worked with many governments, with many institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and uh, certainly with the previous and hopefully the current administration uh, in the UK as well because his insights uh, are both provocative uh, in that they force us to think in new ways but also extremely constructive. I'm delighted that Paul is going to be joining with uh, Tony Venables, the 21st Century School, in a, the program Oxford Institute for Global Economic Development, which has been the result uh, of a match that uh, Jim Martin uh, made possible. And it's wonderful to have Jim and Lillian Martin here this evening. And also uh, Jonathan Oppenheimer, representative of the Brenthurst Foundation, which did this match. We really do want to thank them. Uh, most sincerely for allowing this acceleration, deepening and widening of the work program, uh, which would include that in the area that Paul will refer to. So without further ado, I give the floor to Paul. He'll speak for about 20 minutes. We'll then have a panel discussion uh, for about half an hour and then open the floor to Q&A. Paul. Thanks very much for, for coming, everybody. Uh, 20 minutes. It's, it's a short book, but it's not a 20-minute book, so uh, you will need to read it. Um, <laughs> I want to try and persuade you in 20 minutes that it's, it's actually my most important book, um, so let, let me get going. It's an attempt to build common ground between environmentalism and economics, cat and dog, historically. And in building common ground, I'm going to try and build robust common ground, not the, the happy common ground of soft mush. And that means we're going to lose the fringes in each side. We're going to lose what I think of as the fundamentalist environmentalists or the romantic environmentalists. And we're also going to lose some of the economists. I'm going to try and take insights from each stream. So let's get going. Uh, first insight from economics. Nature is a set of assets and liabilities which are valuable. In fact, as technology advances, nature, natural assets and liabilities get more and more valuable. If you think back to early man, early man didn't have the technological knowledge to use nature. And as technology advances, we discover more and more valuable uses and also more and more damaging side effects. So the value of nature for good and bad gets greater and greater with technology. So nature is a set of valuable assets and liabilities. And now from environmentalism, nature is special. Economists don't like that. Our standard models, nature is just nothing more than a set of ordinary assets and liabilities. But nature is special above all because natural assets have no natural owners. 
The normal process by which assets acquire ownership is the way they're created. Whoever creates an asset owns the property rights to it. Natural assets are just there. There are no defined property rights by nature. And so ownership is a social construct of governance. The management, the, the proper management of nature depends critically upon governance. Without governance, what you get in nature is plunder. Now, plunder is a big emotive word, and I'm a little economist, so I've got to rein that big emotive word in and tell you two things that plunder means. Yeah? Any development economist will tell you one thing that the plunder of nature means, and that is where the few expropriate what should benefit the many, which should belong to the many. And that's one form of plunder which anybody interested in development has seen again and again, certainly across Africa. But environmentalists mean something else by plunder. They mean that the present generation is expropriating what should belong equally to the future. And both these forms of plunder matter. And governance of nature is about preventing those two forms of plunder. Now, if we look across the whole spectrum of the governance of natural assets and liabilities, there are two giant holes, and I'm going to address each of those two holes. The first hole is in the countries I think of as the bottom billion, the poorest societies on earth, the 60 or so little countries with about a billion people in them that for a long time were stagnant, impoverished. Those countries tend to have weak governments. They also, in those countries, the most valuable assets in them by far are natural assets. And so the struggle to control those natural assets meets weak governance, and the governance is stressed beyond the point of endurance. And so you get plunder in one form or another. The other hole in the governance of nature is those natural assets and liabilities that don't have the decency to respect our man-made frontiers. Right? They're transnational assets and liabilities. The fish of the oceans, they don't swim about with passports. Right? The, the, the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere, the natural resources under the oceans, the natural resources underneath the North Pole and the South Pole, right? the Arctic regions. These are international assets and so unowned at the moment because governance at the global level is even weaker than governance in the weakest of the, of the countries of the bottom here. So these are the two areas of gross misgovernance of nature. And I'm going to say a little about each of them. And let me start with the countries of the bottom billion. Right? These are the poorest societies on earth. I want to persuade you that the big issue over the next decade or so for these countries, overwhelmingly the most important development issue, is the management or mismanagement of nature. And I'm going to do that with, with a number which I guarantee will be the one thing in a year's time you remember from this lecture. So here goes. So we're going to start not with the poor countries are going to start with the rich countries of the world, the OECD, the rich man's club. Put all the countries 
of the OECD together, you've got about a quarter of the Earth's land surface. And we're going to look at the typical square mile of that land surface. In fact, we're going to look underneath it. Underneath the typical square mile of the OECD, there are about $300,000 worth of subsoil assets, oil, minerals, that sort of stuff. $300,000 underneath the typical square mile of the OECD. And now we're going to move to Africa. Could be anywhere in the bottom billion, but we'll take Africa. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to take the typical square mile of Africa and we're going to look underneath it. And to make it more interesting, you're going to tell me. To make it manageable, I'm going to give you a choice. It could be Africa could be less than the OECD, or it could be more than the OECD. And you're going to vote on it. So who thinks that the figure for Africa is less than the figure for the OECD? And who thinks it's more than the OECD? And the reason why you're all going to remember it is that you're all wrong. <laughs> Except for my colleague, I was very pleased. Um, economics teaches you something. Um, let me first tell you, you're, you're in good company. I, I, I gave this quiz uh, about a week ago to um, uh, an investor conference in London. It was the uh, Absolute Returns on Capital Conference with 250 of the, the chief executives of the biggest investment funds in the world. So between them, there was over a trillion dollars in the audience. Every single one of that 250 got it wrong. You'd have thought, these guys, you know, these guys are managing the pensions that you won't have. <laughs> but then also, uh, about a week ago, I gave this, the same quiz to, uh, to all the development agencies in the world, which were gathered in Paris for the triennial fundraising effort for the World Bank's uh, International Development Association. Every single one of them got it wrong. Right? So in good company, but I have to tell you, not only are you wrong, but you're very wrong. Right? The figure for Africa isn't $300,000, it's only $60,000. Now, why? These are two huge areas of the Earth's surface, pretty similar, about a, quarter, about a quadrant of the Earth each. What we're looking at is, is a geological process that happened millions and millions of years ago. Right? This is before hot, wet, cold, dry stuff. The chances of two quadrants of the Earth's surface being that different, statistically, are really very small. Right? So it's purposive. There seem to be only two explanations. One is God doesn't like Africa. Right? Everything we know about Africa means we can't reject that possibility. Right? But, the, but the, other, the other one is, um, is why might it be purposive? Because, and here I've cheated, the figures I gave you were for known subsoil assets. You know, I tried to find the figures for unknown subsoil assets, and I just couldn't find them anyway. <laughs> um, there's just been less search and discovery in Africa and the other countries of the bottom billion, a lot less. Now think of the implications of that. That means, in all probability, there's at least $300,000 down there. In all probability, there's more than in the OECD, because we've had two centuries of digging it out in the OECD. There's still $300,000 down there. So $60,000 has been found 
at least $240,000 is down there hidden, waiting to be discovered. With global commodity prices high, and they are high despite the worst global recession for 80 years, they're going to stay high, thanks to Asia. The, the last frontier on earth for resource discovery is these countries of the bottom billion, Africa and the other impoverished countries of the world. Over the next decade or so, these natural assets are going to be discovered by hook or by crook, and probably by crook. <laughs> so that, is, that is, is going to happen. And the amount of money involved in that process dwarfs everything else about these countries. Dwarfs aid, dwarfs remittances, dwarfs foreign capital flows. This is the big money. What's more, potentially, it's Africa's own money. This is not money there will be given as handouts. It will be theirs. And so this is potentially the money that can transform these societies from poverty to prosperity. Potentially. But if we look historically, not only will this be the biggest opportunity they've ever had, it'll be the biggest missed opportunity. Because, because historically, the process of resource extraction in Africa has typically, though not invariably, been plunder in one form or another. So the great challenge is to make sure that history does not repeat itself. That's not a forlorn hope. Think what we've been living through in the last month in Europe. Right? The, uh, the Germans beating up on the, on the Greeks with apology to the Germans. And, and why? What is the German obsession? It's, 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 it's to avoid inflation. Why are the Germans so obsessed about avoiding inflation? Because of all the societies in Europe, they're the one that lived through hyperinflation. They learned from that experience. So societies can learn. And all across Africa, there are brave people who are fully aware that Historically, their natural assets have been plundered and are determined to try and prevent that happening again. But that will be the core struggle. Now, how do we prevent that repetition of history? There's a whole decision chain involved in harnessing natural assets for development. A whole decision chain. The plundered planet lays out that decision chain. What decisions have to go right? You're already aware of that the first link in that chain has gone wrong. First link is discover your natural assets. I'm not going to dwell on that because, I, as I say, that's going to get fixed. The next link in the chain is avoid plunder of type one. That is, capture the value of natural assets for the society so that it benefits the many, not the few. Now, that link in the chain is going horribly wrong. I'll give you just one or two numbers. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, which, which incidentally is neither democratic nor a republic, um, exports of gold from Eastern DRC of the order of a billion dollars a year. I take these numbers from the Financial Times, but so it must be right. A um, billion dollars a year exports of gold um, Revenues from gold exports flowing into the treasury 
of the DRC, $37,000. A billion exports, $37,000 being captured. So this is plunder type one on a grand scale. I mean, that $37,000 is only the money going into the treasury. There's still no guarantee that the $37,000 actually benefits ordinary people. So I could give you a whole chain of numbers like that, that the process of capturing value for society is broken. There's a lot that can be done to put it right. It's a matter of the design and implementation of effective tax systems. Let me move to a couple of other links in the chain. One is avoid the Niger Delta. The Niger Delta is, a, of course, a, look at the Gulf of Mexico, right? The, the Gulf has, that, that oil spill has already reduced the value of BP, which started off as a $200 billion company. It's reduced it by a third, right? That tells you the damage done by uh, neglect, negligence in resource extraction the damage done in a system where you've got a very effective legal redress. And of course, when you turn to something like the Niger Delta, there's no effective legal redress. And so you've had a lot of careless extraction and a lot of environmental damage that could have been avoided. In the process, that has created a backlash of violence. Now the demand in the Niger Delta is for the people of the Delta to own the oil. And that's a mistake. We shouldn't go that far. If we go the route of giving local communities the ownership of the natural resources which they sit on top of, we'll have massive inequality because the luck of the draw is so very unequal. It's already bad enough that Africa's divided into 53 countries. Even, even at that level, the luck of the draw is massively unequal Little Sawatomi Principe, 100,000 people, is sitting on top of an oil field. Ethiopia, nothing. So if we go local, local ownership, we run out. We, we get massive inequality. Next link in the chain is, uh, is to what you do with the revenues to government. And here the, the vital thing is to re realize that you're running down an asset. And so you need to replace that natural asset with assets for the future. And here I want to part company with the fundamentalist wing of the environmental movement. The fundamentalist wing seems to think that our obligations to the future are literally to preserve nature. That we are the curators of a set of natural artifacts. If you define environmentalism like that, it is fundamentally at odds with the challenge of reducing global poverty. And so a, I think a, a better way of seeing our responsibilities to the future is to see us as, sure, we don't have full ownership rights over natural assets. So if we use them, we have to pass on at least equivalent value in other assets that the future will value more. So if Nigeria could harness its oil, turn them into schools, into factories, into ports that would give prosperity to the future, that is ethical. And so we must wrestle the, the ethical high ground away from the fundamentalist doctrine of being curators of a set of natural artifacts 
to the recognition that we're actually custodians of value for the future. And sometimes that will mean use the natural assets. Let me turn to that other hole in governance for a few minutes, and that is the transnational assets. In the book, I cover things like carbon and such like, forests, but I want to just give you a little vignette of fish, which I can do in about three minutes. And fish is a, is a minor tragedy. Once you've understood fish, you realize the enormity of the challenge of managing global assets. So fish have, if, until recently, there was no problem with fish. We didn't have the technology for catching them very effectively. Now we do. We've got floating vacuum cleaners that if we let them loose, there'll be no fish for the future. And so we have to restrict fish, fishing. As we restrict it, we create rents on fish. Who should get those rents? Clearly, the rents should belong to everybody, like the rents on other natural assets. The rents shouldn't belong to the fishermen. The fishermen should get the returns on capital, on risk and labor, but not the rents. The fishermen should be writing as a check, I estimate, for about $20 billion a year for the rents on fish. Instead, we are writing fishermen a check for $30 billion in the form of fishing subsidies. You know what they do with those, rent, with, with, with those checks? They catch fish. They plunder the future of the fish stock with those rents. It's not even that we end up with rich fishermen because they dissipate all this money in an excessive fishing fleet. The global fishing fleet is more than double what's necessary to catch the fish. So this is mismanagement of a small natural asset on the grand scale. We're going to run out of fish, and that is clearly unethical. That breaches our responsibilities to the future. If we can't get fish right, which are very simple, What's the hope of getting the really complicated and high-value natural assets like carbon? Now, finally, what can we do to ensure that these holes in global governance get filled? That the decision chain for harnessing natural assets in the poorest countries holds again and again, because it needs to hold not just once, but for a generation, and that problems like fish and the other natural assets and liabilities that are transnational gets addressed. And in both cases, the answer is the same. There is no substitute for building a critical mass of informed citizens, society by society. That is what will discipline government. Fortunately, technology is on our side. Information technology. Let me close with the story of China much more repressive than any of the societies that, of, of the poorest countries. You'll remember two years ago, there were earthquakes in China, which, and schools collapsed and killed school children. And the reason the schools collapsed was the building regulations had not been respected. Within 48 hours of that happening, ordinary Chinese citizens had used the web and the internet and mobile phones to do three things. One, they'd found out why those schools collapsed. Two, they found out who in their local government had taken the bribes. 
And three, they'd organised amongst themselves street protests. There's a wonderful photo on the web of a Chinese local government official on his knees in the street before a crowd of angry parents. If that can happen in China two years ago, it can happen in any of the societies of the bottom billion and in our own rich societies where the, the misgovernance of things like fish uh, is, 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 is happening. Finally, you remember this famous statistic that there are only six degrees of separation between any two people on Earth. We've now at last got the technology to rip through those six degrees of distance. Anybody can connect with anybody. That's why I wrote The Plundered Planet. That's why, together with Tony Venables, I built something called the Natural Resource Charter, which is a website. I need ambassadors to take that message out. Please become those ambassadors. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Paul, for what has been extremely thought-provoking. Uh, I'm sorry we kept you to 20 minutes, and thank you for sticking to your time. Uh, but I think you've given us enough which is tantalizing to encourage those of you, us that haven't already read the book uh, to get it. And of course, um, for those of you that haven't been students of Paul's in Oxford, to wish <coughs> you were. Uh, Oxford is fortunate to have Paul as a professor of economics director of the Center for African Economies, uh, and to be a person who's inspired generations of students. We have a great panel tonight, uh, and the first of our panelists, uh, Charles Badenoch, was a former student of, of uh, Paul's. Uh, Charles is now the VP uh, of Advocacy and Justice for Children at World Vision International, which is, I think, certainly one of the largest of the civil society organizations that operates. He was previously CEO of World Vision UK uh, and has an extremely interesting past. He's someone who was an accountant, one of the most interesting accountants I've ever met, uh, but started uh, by doing work in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. So he's gone through an interesting cycle of starting in development uh, and coming back to it. He'll be our first panelist. Our second will be Jamie Drummond who's the Executive Director and Global Strategy Director of ONE. Uh, ONE, as you might be aware, uh, was co-founded with Bono and Bobby Schreiber building Out of Data, which was the organization that Jamie built with Bono. Uh, Jamie has been a campaigner for justice and for uh, particularly the aid agenda, the Millennium Gold agenda, and for the reform of the Bretton Woods institutions for a long time. At times, we sat on other sides of the fence when I was Vice President of the World Bank. It's delightful uh, to be always aligned with his views uh, and clearly is someone who's able to take the sorts of thoughts that uh, one learns from Paul into global political and campaigning agendas. And then finally, we'll have Gideon Rachman, who's the Financial Times Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator. Uh, Gideon studied at the other place, Cambridge, obtained a first-class honours degree there, has worked uh, as an editor of The Economist's Asia Desk, and now at the FT focuses on a very wide range of issues. For those of you that read the FT as religiously as I do, reading Gideon's papers and reading his articles, his blog is a real treat. And for those of you that haven't yet gone there, I encourage you 
uh, to do so. So we're very fortunate, and the other panelists will, of course, be Paul Collier and myself, the director of the 21st Century School. So please take the stage. And Charles, would you like to speak from here? Or? Well, good evening, everyone. It's, it's good to be back here. I haven't been back here for, for many years. I think last time was at uh, gradu graduation. Um, and many thanks to Paul for producing such an interesting book, a book that I think will really help the world's most vulnerable children. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, who are the people most affected by this plunder that Paul has talked and written about? It is both today's and tomorrow's children. I also want to thank Paul, as you heard, I was a student of his, and after 25 years in the corporate world, it was partly Paul and one or two others who persuaded me to come back into the, uh, the development world. And what I want to just do in this uh, brief 10 minutes, or I've been told if I can keep it less, even 10 minutes, uh, but it's shorter time, is give you thoughts on the plundered lives of children. Um, as working for uh, World Vision focused on justice for children, I want to look at his book through the lens of children and what plunder is doing to them. And I'm not going to argue with Paul on his economics. I just want to challenge him on some of the development side of it. But let me start by applauding Paul's attention to governance. Um, I don't know if Jamie will take me up on this or not, but one of the shortcomings of Make Poverty History was not enough sufficient attention given to the whole issue of governance. Aid, trade and debt are never alone going to solve the problems of poverty for the bottom billion. We need good governance. And in his book, Paul talks about Haiti. Haiti is a terrible example of what goes wrong when there isn't good governance. Even before the devastating earthquake that happened in January of this year, we saw the unintended consequences of a failed state and lots and lots, billions and billions of money going into Haiti in a very uncoordinated fashion, going to lots of targeted local NGOs and then having very unintended consequences such as 300,000 children landing up in institutions. As of uh, the middle of last year, even before the earthquake, Haiti had the highest rate of institutionalization of children because of failed governance and people pouring money in in a very ineffective way. Just developing on governance, I also want to just look at the idea of what Paul was just saying at the end there about information technology. And that is very important. It works in places like China. It works in the North. However, I would challenge Paul to say how much is it really going to work amongst the bottom billion in Africa in particular. And I think we do, though, need to build a very vibrant civil society in order to assure that accountability, particularly in the bottom billion. So let me just give two ideas of how we can do that in addition to using information technology. And the first idea is we need more investment in education. There's been a lot of focus on primary education, but in fact, all the evidence shows that it's only when children get into secondary education 
that the real thinking skills, the skills that people will then challenge their governments, challenge their elders, really kick in. And that is also a time when children, especially girls, drop out more. So I would really implore that if we want to get a vibrant civil society, we need more investment in education. And the other thing we need for a vibrant civil society is to have the participation of children. Too often, I think, we, we, we think of it's only when children become or people become adults that they have anything to offer to mobilizing around civil society. One of the, the, the privileges of working in World Vision is I meet a lot of incredible children and youth. A few weeks ago, I was in Bolivia, where DFID are, through World Vision, funding a communications workshop. And I met some of the children who'd been on this workshop. They had far more articulate views than I've ever heard from any adult about how to communicate using modern media, their ideas of changing what was happening to them in their society. There's a 12-year-old girl who wanted to launch a program called uh, Nunca Mas, Never Again, because she was fed up seeing what had happened to children, the abuse of children in her community. And she wanted to tell her peers how they could change this. She had ideas for her community. She had ideas for what she wanted to do on national radio. She wanted to go onto the internet and broadcast it globally. So let's not just think of children as people who, yes, they're rather, rather cuddling. They have, I believe, the roots that can really change our society because they're far more open and creative. I'm sorry, you guys, you've already sort of, I know there's some, you're much younger than me, but I wonder how creative are you still? Children at the age of 8 to 18 are incredibly creative, and I tell you, they don't take no for an answer. A couple other points I'd just like to pick up on in Paul's book, which he hasn't covered tonight, but you really should read the book, Hunger. The Plundered Planet has a whole um, chapter on hunger, but I just want to make hunger and what it means for children in the bottom billion a little more real to you. That are statistics, 150 million children now in the world are stunted. And when I say stunted, I don't just mean physically, but mentally. And since 1980, with the global economic crisis and so forth, the number of hungry people has increased from 850 million to over a billion. Half of those are children. But then there's the picture the picture that makes me fight for justice for children. The picture is two brain scans, one of a, of a well-nourished child and one of an 18-month child that is malnourished. The malnourished child literally has a hole in the brain. That hole will never be filled. So stunting is a real actuality today. And Paul's book addresses one of the issues, supply of food. And he also cuts through a lot of the romanticism about genetic crops and so forth. And I, I really do feel we need an informed debate, a debate based on evidence around agriculture. But it is not just about supply. It is also about access. In many cultures in Africa, for instance, it is the father, the grown men who eat first and it's the children and the mothers who get literally the scraps. 
There's the whole issue of how food is utilized. Believe it or not, in some of the poorer society, it, we, we are now beginning to see not only malnutrition, but obesity, because there is not the education around what food is needed. And then finally, I'd like to end with a challenge and an advert. In the, in the Plundered Planet, Paul says, quote, rights are central to the ethics of the natural world, the rights of the present versus the future, and my rights versus yours. And I really, again, want to affirm Paul for, build, for focusing on building prosperity. But I would like also to see more focus on child rights. Paul has a wonderful son, Daniel, who he talks about in the book. And he talks about Daniel's outrage about the destruction of rainforests. And Paul thinks that outrage demands a response. I agree with him. But I also ask that how do we get people globally to be as outraged about what's happening to the environment, to also have that outrage to what's happening to vulnerable children all over the world, in Angola, Bolivia, Cambodia, and so on, all the way through to Zambia. Today, eight million children a year die before the age of five. This is a silent emergency. And when I say they die, they're dying of simple, causes. 1.8 million die of diarrhea. If we just had 100 children dying in this country of diarrhea, it would be an outrage. So I hope you might want to find out more about that, and please go to www.childhealthnow.org. But let me get back to Paul's book. I thoroughly commend it. Do read it. Do take action, and do become ambassadors for Paul's book and for the rights of children. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Jamie. Thank you, Charles, Ian, uh, Paul. Um, and thank you very much for inviting uh, me here today to, to, to touch on some of these issues. And um, uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate Paul on his excellent uh, alliteration. Uh, as a campaigner, we've come up with, in our organization, various slogans over the years, drop the debt, um, being one of them, and Paul always manages to hit the you know, plundered planet or bottom billion. And I think that there's a serious point there, which is that, it, unusually for an economist, and I apologize to all the other economists or trainee economists here in the room, he writes really well, um, which, <laughs> which means that it's, it's, it's easier to follow what he's trying to say, even if you don't always 100% agree, though, though largely, I have to say, we do. Um, and... Um, that's incredibly useful, incredibly helpful, and an amazing asset for, for a, a kind of a, a set of issues that need to be very well communicated because they are very hard, actually, to grasp. And where we sit is often that place between uh, very complex issues that demand complex policy responses, but you can only muster the political will to tackle those complex and, and, and actually invest in those complex policy responses if you get enough public support. And getting public support is very difficult for complex issues for very far away places that might eventually come back and hit you in some way or other, positively or negatively, depending upon what you do. But um, if you don't get it right, 
you know, uh, sorry, the communication part of this right, you lose the public, as I nearly just did you then. And um, <laughs> what happens is you, you, you can't get the important responses from the policymakers. And it's a real, real challenge um, that we face all the time. And I'm going to try and use the plundered planet and, and some of Paul's arguments to, to actually talk about a real-time uh, challenge for us. Um, I hope, and I believe uh, statistically it would be right to say that many of you over the last decade would have supported uh, maybe the Jubilee 2000 Drop the Debt campaign or Make Poverty History uh, or gone to a concert on one of these issues or at the very least bought a fair trade product and support Oxfam being a local brand. And you, you would have done amazing good work by supporting in particular the advocacy side of, of, of these organizations. Um, and yet there's also been a tremendous challenge uh, from, if you like, some, some in the intellectual community, some in the, uh, in, in the international community, and especially from Africa, to the apparent agenda that we've been campaigning for all of these years, in particular as embodied and simplified by the issue of aid. Um, a lot of development campaigning has been reduced uh, to more aid, less aid, is aid good or is aid bad? And I think, as Paul's pointing out here, there's a whole agenda on natural resource management for campaigners to work on that we have not done enough on that is at least as, if not far more important than the aid debate. And I think it's incredibly useful for us to remember that while even saying that um, we can't stop campaigning on development assistance. Effective development assistance is still a crucial part of the solution, even for many of the issues that that Paul's uh, asking we all gather together to help address. Targeted smart aid will be key to helping these countries you know, manage better their natural resources. Um, and so we mustn't let um, important new issues that come up, such as this, um, the, the, the set of issues that Paul points out in the Planet Planet, which are hardly new, but he's articulated them so well that they feel new. Um, we mustn't let them feel like, if you, if you don't mind my saying so, they're the shiny you know, white object or the new silver bullet. Um, and that's the answer now. We, we know what the answer is now. In fact, it was all the other things we've been campaigning already as well. And even some of the issues addressed in this book um, were things, I mean, I remember uh, campaigning with number 10, uh, lobbying number 10 in 2002-03 about extractive industries in the early days of Global Witnesses Publish What You Fund, Publish What You Pay campaign. And uh, you know, th this set of issues has been around for a long time, but I think now more than ever, there's a real moment to grab some of what Paul's uh, talking about in the book and turn it into a campaignable agenda. And how you do that and the process you do that is very, very, it's, it's very hard to figure out exactly what it is. And I think um, in, in the book you talk, Paul, a bit about the, um, there's a sort of a bottom-up hope you have that we're going to figure it out collectively as a global civil society. I think, Gideon, you're going to talk a bit more about this, so I won't touch it too much. But I, I hope that's what will happen. And at one.org, we're trying to kind of encourage the foment of a, of a stronger global civil society on this set of issues with partners. Um, but it's, it's a long, difficult process. And along the way, we will occasionally have to ask our famous friends to engage on these issues, celebrities and so on, because it's very hard to keep the public engagement in them. So, you know, apologies when, when, when uh, Bono or someone like that crops up and, and, and you know, tries to help create uh, public interest in the issue, which I know some people find, like, why do we have to listen to Bono talking about this stuff? Well, y you don't if 
we all already are campaigning on these issues, and the Financial Times and the other uh, great papers are covering all the time these issues in the way we'd all wish. Um, but unfortunately, we, you know, we sometimes need to, to, to go to famous friends for a bit of uh, pixie dust every now and then to kind of keep the thing moving forward and the public debate moving forward. If there's one thing I'd like to sort of, you know, be a little self-critical about, um, or more than a little self-critical about, I, I think we haven't done enough on, on governance and accountability overall, it, because it's been so hard to campaign on. And, and, uh, and I'd love to see this book as, as, as another good slap in the face to force that, we, we, we put this more at the centre of our work going forward. Um, Charles, you, you, you mentioned that governance hadn't been a key part of uh, the Make Poverty History campaign. Um, actually, it, it was. It just, it's a very hard thing to write about, so it never ended up in the papers. Uh, the actual intellectual underpinnings of, of what we were campaigning for wasn't just debt, aid, and trade. It was also democracy, accountability, transparency. It was this notion of a deal. Um, and the second DAT, Democracy, Accountability, Transparency, are at the heart of a, a governance agenda. But, you know, who remembers that bit? Because uh, it was the next three things. It was after the first three things. It's too much stuff. We don't remember it. We don't write about it. So how to figure out how to communicate effectively the complex stuff it is the next big challenge for us. And I think the other thing, that, if I may quibble a little bit, you, most poor people in Africa are farmers. Um, and I feel like um, maybe we come back to the discussion a bit. Uh, uh, you, you know, you, you, uh, they're mostly small farmers, um, and uh, it would be great to hear a bit more from you about what we can do with the people, with policy responses for where they are now, what, not where we hope they might be in the future. Um, and it was a little bit, uh, um, I felt, not fully there in that regard. And they're also stewards of a lot of a lot of natural resources. So it'd be nice to know what you think. We could be doing more as campaigners on that issue. It's certainly a huge failure of development and uh, of the World Bank and of development campaigners in the last 20, 30 years that we haven't paid enough attention to agriculture. And that's now happily starting to change. But I think um, it would be great to hear a bit more from you about uh, what, what, we, what we can do there. Finally, um, this year, uh, President Obama has said he wants to put a new global plan together to achieve the Millennium Development Goals by September. Not many people know he said this, because he's got a lot of other stuff on his plate, and he hasn't repeated it very often. Um, but I just want to draw our attention to the fact that the Millennium Development Goals, which were brought into being in the year 2000, partly off the back of some campaigning like, like on debt cancellation, are 10 years in, and there's five years to go. And this year, also, the promises that were made in Glen Eagles in 2005, which many of you would have campaigned for, I hope, um, some of them expire this year. So the issue is, informed by things like uh, Paul's book, what are the new set of promises that we're all going to work together to campaign to get leaders to, to, to make that are more accountable, more realistic, and, and perhaps uh, the most policy savvy, which, which, which build upon working on aid and trade and debt, um, but focus on, on things like extractive industries and also on things like the Stolen Asset Recovery Initiative that the World Bank's been championing. A few other key governance initiatives. How can we put them all together into a new plan that's, that's actually agreed in a more accountable form so we can, if you like, over the next five years, in 2010, 2015, keep the pressure on those leaders who, who hopefully will make a new set of promises so that by 2015 we've done a much better job of achieving the Millennium Development Goals and creating a better foundation for, for better things that come thereafter. So I'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much.
Thanks very much, uh, Jamie. And Gideon will wrap up the panel. Well, uh, thanks, Ian, and thank you, Paul, for a very stimulating lecture and for, for inviting me along. What I'd like to talk about uh, is global governance, which is the issue that Paul ended both his talk and his, his book on. He writes in the book about the absence of government above the level of the nation state as a critical difficulty for dealing with environmental problems, and it identifies global warming, the management of global fish stocks, the international food crisis of 2008, as examples of these cross-cutting uh, environmental issues which can only be solved on a global basis, but that we don't have the governmental structures to deal with efficiently. I think he's right that global governance is a critical issue. And interestingly, it's not just on the environment, although the environment is, is uh, an example where global governance is absolutely necessary. It's, it's striking how many of the big political issues we now deal with come with the prefix global ahead of them. So there's global warming, but there's also the global financial crisis. There's global economic imbalances. And there's a set of other critical political issues that clearly can't be solved by single nations acting alone. There's the, the nuclear proliferation, which has been the subject of a big conference, international conference in New York over the last month. There's immigration, international organized crime, failed states such as Afghanistan, which when things really go wrong, you end up with these big multinational uh, war efforts uh, in, in, in countries such as Afghanistan and indeed Iraq. Now, the good news is that people are increasingly aware of the problem aware that global governance is the sort of coming issue, the, the issue that they've got to wrestle with, and also that there are real advances in global governance. The G20 is, an is I think, uh, the main example of, uh, of a, a new development. So that uh, if you talk, for example, to the people in the Obama administration about, well, what is it that, that, uh, that you brought to the table when you think about US foreign policy? How have you changed it? Someone like Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's the head of the Policy Planning Institute, uh, Policy Planning Group in the State Department, says, well, this is our insight, this is our central insight, that the US, the age of unilateralism is over, that they're the most important issues that we face we can't solve alone, even as the sole superpower, that we have to do it through international cooperation. And the biggest single development, political development, really, to come out of the global economic crisis was the development of the G20. And again, that was a significant moment because for years, everyone's been moaning that the uh, international governance structures don't reflect the power realities of the world. Archetypally, that's true of the UN Security Council, but it's also true of the G7. It was more and more obvious that the, this group of countries no longer reflected uh, economic and political power, let alone uh, the population of the globe. Well, the G20 is a bit different. India's at the table. China's at the table. Brazil is at the table. South Africa, Saudi Arabia. It's a much more representative group and it has effectively shoved aside the old G8. So that's the good news. But I think the bad news, unfortunately, outweighs the good news because effective international government is still formidably difficult, even with new organizations. And it's been made, I think, more difficult by the international economic crisis. And to look at an example of, of how the international economic crisis is making international governance harder, just look close to home, look at the European Union which in many ways is the most advanced form of supranational governance there is. And the EU got frightfully excited when the G20 got going and sort of saw it as a, the G20 as something that could perhaps be modelled on the European Union eventually, a kind of small beginnings based around economics and it would grow into a new kind of form of global governance. But in fact, 
the EU itself is now in the midst of a, a massive crisis, which we'll all be following in the, in the newspapers, the, the problem of the euro, and, the, and not just, and this isn't just a management crisis, it's a political crisis because it has caused ill feeling of a sort that, uh, that is not common in the, in the European Union and which indeed the EU was set up to kind of try to get rid of, but suddenly you, ha you have countries uh, really at each other's throats, uh, in particular the Greeks and the Germans, but I'm afraid it may just be a prelude. And Paul, Paul mentioned uh, fish quotas as an example of a failure of international governance. And it is a very interesting and, and rather disheartening example when you, when you think about uh, what we're going to have to do on climate change. Um, I, I used to be based in Brussels, and typically what would happen with, fish, with a fish quota story, the EU has these uh, these bodies that deal with it, the scientists would turn up, they would give the advice to the politicians about what we needed to do, and the politicians would say, well, my goodness, you know, that's impossible, we can't do that, but maybe we'll do half of it. And then they'd sort of negotiate all night about some new fish quota deal, and they'd, they'd perhaps get to about half of what the scientists said they would, should do, and then they'd all go home, and then they'd all violate the agreements anyway. So they'd probably end up doing only about a quarter of what the scientists said, what, said they should do. And uh, despite all this enormous political effort, despite the agreement that something must be done, despite the fact that something, in fact, was being done, the problem just got worse and worse. And if you could see that, as Paul said, with fish, which is relatively straightforward, is not at the center of anyone's economy, we can't fix that. How are we going to fix climate change? And I think you saw uh, in the Copenhagen Climate Change Summit uh, towards the end of last year just how difficult the problem of global governance this is going to be. The G20, uh, so some people said looking at the climate change, uh, the collapse of the climate change talks, well, the problem is it's the UN. And the UN is essentially dysfunctional because it's 194 countries. And if you're going to have to get a deal between everybody from you know, Bolivia to Zimbabwe, it's just never going to happen. So let's do it through the G20. These are the countries, you know, at least it's a manageable number of countries around the table. They represent you know, a broader range of interests. If they can do it, that, that could be the deal. And the, G, uh, the high hopes were invested in the G20, and I don't want to sort of say that it's, it's never going to work, but um, the G20 actually arguably gone off to a good start with the uh, the April summit, which was in London about 14 months ago, was, I think, an important turning point in the global economic crisis, where just the very fact that these leaders of these very diverse countries and economies and political systems were able to get together in a room and say, we're going to do our level best collectively to fix this, that as Clinton used to like to say of globalization, we're all in this together, that they said that at a time when a lot of people thought, well, actually, this economic crisis is going to lead to a massive sort of falling out among the major powers. That was important. I think it did stabilize the global, you know, markets, actually. It was, if you're looking for a turning point in market sentiment, it was around that. So that was a good start. But the trouble is that once they get onto the details, agreement begins to break down. And if you look at my own newspaper today, I've perhaps too many plugs for the FT today, but I'll give one more. Uh, on the front page, the, the story is G20 fails to agree on worldwide banking tax. Um, and again, it's an interesting example because nobody likes the banks at the moment and everybody's desperate for revenue. So you'd think this would be one thing they could agree on, that well, let's all go and get some money from the banks and tax them. But actually they can't. Britain, France and the US, well, perhaps not coincidentally, countries, certainly Britain and the US, which have really suffered because of the problems of the investment banks, were in favour of a global banking tax. China, but also Australia and Canada were against, and so we walk away from the table without an agreement and another big hole in the net of global governance. I've got, only got a couple more minutes. I'll just 
say what I think that tells us. I think it tells us two things. Firstly, that it's very easy for countries. They all will agree, yeah, these are global issues. We've got to have global governance. There's what I call first-level agreement and second-level disagreement. There's agreement there's a problem that's got to be solved globally. As soon as you get into the details, you start running into national interest, and national interests uh, then very often stymie agreement. Uh, so they, they're good on agreeing on generalities. When you get into the details, it's a big problem. Second thing is that the interesting coalitions that are thrown up when you have these, uh, these arguments break out. Uh, the one I mentioned on the global banking tax, it's not one would naturally think these countries are political bedfellows. But again, on climate change, America, I think, assumed that the, the, the world's democracies would stand with America. But actually, you know, Brazil, India were with China on this particular issue because it was a sort of developing nation versus rich nation uh, divide. Let me finish by addressing Paul's idea of global civil society. Uh, Paul shares, I think, my skepticism about global governance at the international level, but unlike me, he has a solution, which is citizen power, bottom-up international coordination. It's an inspiring idea, but I must say, uh, perhaps we can ex examine it in the discussion. It's one that I'm a little bit skeptical about, because from what I've seen of uh, where international leaders fail to come to agreement, it's largely because they're, they're scared of their own public opinions. You know, you stick 20 reasonably intelligent leaders in a, in a room together, they can probably see, identify a common problem and maybe come up with a solution. The problem is that they all have to go home again, and they're worried that they face a backlash from the public back home if they agree to something, whether it's on fish or climate or Afghanistan, that appears to mean that their country, their people are being asked to bear an unfair share of the burden, you know. Is uh, what do you mean that we're cutting emissions and the Chinese aren't? What, what do you mean that uh, you know the Spanish have got this huge fish quota and we haven't? That's where agreement breaks down. And I'm afraid that the lesson of the EU that I observed over, over a few years, based in Brussels, is that international governments works best when it is secretive, when it's technocratic, when it basically ignores ordinary people. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, that is a recipe for a different sort of problem, which is what the EU is now discovering. Thanks.